From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On today's episode of EOD Drinks, we're talking with Peggy No Stevens, the first female master bourbon taster and the founder of Bourbon Women. Bourbon Women is an organization for women who are passionate about bourbon culture, women, and the promise of adventure when the two are combined. It's an independent forum that brings women of all walks of life together over a glass of bourbon with a focus on initiating, cultivating, and inspiring deep and meaningful relationships, encouraging the development of women personally, professionally, and courageously, and supporting members in their journey to become the best versions of themselves in the world of bourbon. Additionally, they provide a safe, inclusive environment for fun, discovery, and learning. This was an interview that we recorded with Peggy right before the holidays, so she also gives us a little bit of information on pairing bourbon with some of her favorite dishes. All right, Katie and team, take it away. Hello, and welcome to Vine Pair's End of Day Drinks podcast. I'm Katie. I'm the editorial associate here at Vine Pair, and I'm lucky enough today to be here with Peggy No Stevens. Peggy, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Happy holidays to you. <laughs> you too. Peggy is the world's first female master bourbon taster and the founder of Bourbon Women, which is the first women's consumer organization in the beverage industry. So we're really lucky to have her on. Um, today, I'm also joined by some of my fellow editorial uh, team. So Adam Teeter, Vine Pair's co-founder. Hey, Adam. Hey, Katie. What's up? And then Kat Walensky, who is Vine Pair's senior editor. Hey, everyone. And hello, Peggy. So exciting to have you on. Thank you. So, Peggy, we're so excited to have you, especially right before the holidays, to talk about everybody's favorite fall and winter drink, that is bourbon. Um, and we all brought a bourbon drink today, right? So I'm curious what everyone decided to mix up. Uh, oh, Adam, I'm, let's I'm have you go more, first. I got to tell you, I'm even more curious on what you all gravitated <laughs> to. So I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I mean, I'm, I, I'm drinking bourbon the way I normally drink it, which is straight. And what bourbon you, did you choose? Uh, what, what am I drinking? Yeah. I mean, Peggy, you're mad at me if I tell you and it's not like, I mean, so I'm, I'm drinking uh, Evan Williams Single Barrel. Why would I be mad about that? Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm a little jealous, actually. I just find it to be like an amazing bourbon for the money. Absolutely. Kat, what about you? So I also usually uh, sip my bourbon neat, but in the festivity of the podcast, I tried to make a cocktail really quickly. <laughs> um, I was going for a hot toddy because that's sort of my thing the past couple of weeks, but I didn't really have time to make it hot. So I basically just tried to mix in a drop or two of honey uh, into a couple ounces of rare breed and um, I like express some fresh mint leaves and drop them in there and mix it up with an ice cube. The honey did not dissolve, which is probably not surprising, but it's actually really tasty. That's pretty <laughs> fancy for like a last minute cocktail. No yeah, I, I'm impressed. Actually. We get creative and all this time working from home, you know, it's like, this is my chance to, <laughs> to, to have some fun and do something weird. Totally. What about you, Peggy? Well, I have been doing some blind tastings today because I'm a whiskey reviewer for American Whiskey Magazine, 
So when I do that, and you know, I'm just tasting straight, I always want a real cocktail after I do that. And so I, it was perfect timing for your, for your podcast. And I That's made awesome. a black Manhattan. And what I love about those, it's your typical, you know, add your bourbon, but I also put a little bit of bitters, some cherry syrup, and then I put some Amaro, and that's why they call it a Black Manhattan, because you just put enough to change the color mm. of the cocktail to a darker, darker color. Oh, that sounds, that delicious. sounds delicious. I don't think I've ever put Amaro in my whiskey like that. Mm. And, and that's the thing. It's so funny because I find out that so many people don't because they do vermouth instead. But I was turned on to this, oh gosh, probably five years ago. It was actually another bourbon woman. Uh, that that taught me about it. And once I did, I was hooked. And it's kind of my go-to cocktail these days. That's awesome. Well, I, I'm i drinking um, some apple cider that I um, heated up and I just put a little bit of Maker's Mark in there. It's really delicious. Uh, there's a place right nearby me that sells like fresh cider. So I've been drinking it a lot, spiked mm-hmm. and not throughout the days here because it's really cold. I'm in Colorado, Peggy. Um, so it's been snowing and it just feels like the perfect winter drink. That sounds delicious. Absolutely. (laughs) I hear a lot of toddies, of course, during, and I just wrote an article about warm winter drinks. So you Mm. all are right in line. We're on trend. That's good to know. (laughs) Always good to know. So Peggy, um, can you talk a little bit about bourbon women? I know that it's probably, you know, bourbon is obviously a very male dominated industry. So I've just been curious what it's like for you to lead a bunch of women in that space. And how have you kind of seen things change over the course of your time working in bourbon? Oh, wow. Um, Well, it's been an evolution. And the best way I can say it is when I was young in the industry, and I worked for a major spirits company, I I was a, a master taster, female master taster, and I would travel around and conduct tastings. And largely, 90%, if not 98%, uh, in the audience were male. And if there were any kind of trickle of women, it would be um, just a couple, but I'd never hear from them during the seminar. They would always come up after the seminar. And I was really understanding their loyalty to bourbon, how they loved it, how engaged they were during the seminar, but they just never raised their hand. And so, you know, fast forward to when I started my own company and the industry still really wasn't having what I call a conversation with mm-hmm. women and I knew they were out there. So I conducted a bunch of focus groups throughout Kentucky and asked women, what do you want? You know, if there was an organization or a way that the industry would talk to you about bourbon, what would that be? And would you like it? And it was just overwhelmingly unanimous. And so Bourbon Women Organization was born right after that. And that has been literally 10 years ago. And I'm happy to say that we now have thousands of women across the U.S., some international. Uh, We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary. We're calling it a toast to the 10th. Uh, in 2021. I'm glad it wasn't in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we're having a two-day virtual where we celebrate uh, 10 cities uh, with distilleries. And we have formal branches in a little bit over 10 now, uh, like New York, California, et cetera. Uh, And uh, I'm just so excited 
about the enthusiasm um, that these women have shown because we've conducted well over 250 events across the nation in that period of time, all lifestyle events, whether it's cooking with bourbon, you know, bourbon tastings, whiskey comparisons. Um, we've had distilleries, speakers, master distillers come in and the women just love it. Uh, and virtually where we thought we were so disappointed that we couldn't do our annual SIP Symposium, that's SIP, Symposium, uh, in 2020, because usually about 350 women come in for an entire weekend for bourbon excursions and culinary dinners at distilleries and all of these things. Uh, it was okay because we ended up doing a three day virtual conference back in August. And do you know our reach uh, through that virtual conference? There's always a silver lining to 2020. Um, really extended it to more women. So we don't know what to expect at our next conference in 2021 because we had just so many women reaching out saying, what's this about? How do we join? Um, they just loved it. So I could not be more pleased with how the industry has supported us, um, helped fund us you know, at these different events and how the yeah. women have responded. That's awesome. And so you said that you've been kind of conducting that virtually, which I think is really cool because obviously it does help kind of gain access for people who might not have been able to go travel. Um, so I think that's really awesome. I'm curious as a master bourbon taster, first of all, if you could talk about what does a master bourbon taster do and how does that work uh, during this virtual world that we're currently living in during COVID? Right. Well, um, first of all, I became a master uh, bourbon taster. I was the first female master bourbon taster in the world, if you can believe it. Um, that was back in the 90s. And uh, I remember being almost taken a pause when they said, do you realize you're the first one ever given this title as a female? And, and I thought that was almost uh, as excited as I was and honored that I was. Um, it was almost odd to me, right? Uh, because I couldn't believe that in 1990s that we were that far behind. But yeah. what a master taster does, it's, it's, it can be different, you know, from distillery to distillery, because that's how we roll in our industry. Um, and there's master blenders, master distillers, you know, and we each kind of do our own thing. But master taster is usually quality control. Uh, it is usually identifying uh, flavor profiles within the whiskey uh, to have the consumers understand what they're drinking. And um, I would conduct tastings. I served as an ambassador uh, for a particular brand for quite some time. And then in my own company, uh, it became truly part of my business. Um, business being sourcing whiskey uh, for different companies that wanted to start a distillery. I mentioned just a minute ago, you know, that I was doing some blind tastings. Um, I do whiskey reviews. I'm a spirits judge. Uh, and invite it to many spirit competitions to um, really kind of profile different whiskeys and judge the quality of them. So a master taster can really envelop uh, quite a few areas within the industry. And it's been tons of fun. It has been something that I purely enjoy and have truly parlayed, you know, my love for, you know, a whiskey palate uh, into food pairings with bourbon. Uh, and so that's, that's another passion of mine. And so I just came out with a book along with my good friend, Susan Riegler, who's also a spirits writer. It's called, Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? And, uh, because people are almost gun shy 
They think wine is the only thing that could ever go with food, and that is certainly not the case because bourbon is so complex. So we not only teach in the book kind of the tricks of the trade, um, but you know how to conduct a tasting, what to look for you know, in a bourbon, how to food pairing, um, how to entertain in your home uh, using bourbon. So we, I kind of took everything that I've ever learned, I think, in, in bourbon and entertaining and uh, put it in the book so that a consumer could enjoy it in their own home. Interesting. So Peggy, you've been around bourbon for a very long time, obviously very famous uh, family connection to bourbon. Um, I'm curious to, to really to dig in here and talk about sort of how, what the bourbon industry needs to do and I think the whiskey industry in general to make itself more welcoming to women, because there is so many people that talk to us readers who say, you know, I'm a massive whiskey drinker. Um, but I just don't feel like the industry ever talks to me. You know, I don't feel like the brands talk to me. They always assume that it's, it's just something that men drink. And so what does the industry need to do better? And what do we as a publication need to do better in order to ensure that we are talking to women equally when it comes to talking about whiskey. Well, I, I simply love that you've identified that and have asked that big, bold question. And there's there's quite a bit uh, that can be done. You know, one of the uh, premises, too, of the Bourbon Women Organization was not just to start a conversation with women and, you know, give what I call edutainment uh, to women, but it was also to debunk the myth that the industry had. They thought that a woman, in order to drink bourbon, that they would have to dumb it down and make it sweeter and Mm -hmm. uh, a lighter proof and, um, you know, not so robust. And it was Mm -hmm. quite the opposite. So one of the things that we really dug into was research and we conducted, you know, again, blind tastings. We conducted, um, you know, tasting profiles based on a woman's palate. And what we found hands down is that women across the board, um, this is no coincidence, uh, liked stronger, spicier, higher proof, and more robust whiskeys. <laughs> and so when we, you know, deliver that information, we kind of, what I said, debunk the myth uh, mm-hmm. that's out there to let spirits companies know, don't dumb it down. Don't You don't have to pinkify it uh, just for a woman to enjoy it, to make it more welcoming, you know, for a woman. And I'll just take an exa- a quick example. Uh, take your, your whiskey trade show. I have attended so many of those across the country and, you know, scores of men will come in, women will come in. And I have noticed that the representatives sometimes behind the table that are pouring the whiskey, they really pay attention to the men and they're pouring the whiskey and they're talking to the men and the women almost have to beg for a glass, you know, or say, Hey, you know, I'm over here. Um, And they need to identify with women when they are approached. Uh, you know, by a woman, to talk to them, to welcome them, to give them that glass, ask them if they have questions, because what we have found is these women are no Whiskey 101 people. They know their stuff. They're researchers. They're educated. They're working women. They study, you know, just like um, men do. You know, another um, area uh, that I think is really important, too, is uh, in the retail stores. You know, especially when you go to a liquor store and a woman's going down the aisle, you know, looking at bourbons, you know, to ask her if she needs any assistance and let her ask questions. Uh, that's that's another area that I think is really important. You know, some of the events that we hold, we just did one, for example, with Four Roses. We called it the Sip and Scream 
Mm -hmm. uh, and we did a hand-selected barrel pick with four roses and bottled it and uh, sold it in the liquor stores, you know, and it was specified to a women's palette. We did another one with Maker's Mark this holiday season. It sold out in two hours. A whole barrel of bourbon sold out in two hours by the women buying it because that shows passion. So I think the more we show uh, the love that, you know, uh, females can have, you know, with this industry and with a product, um, it's quite pro uh, profitable, you know, for the industry because we're the other half of the population. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, more than half <laughs> in most yeah. cases. I'm so, curious to... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kat. Oh, I was going to ask Peggy what you think about the kind of cross collaboration with other beverage industries because today uh, we actually just published our 50 best beers of the year. And one of them was the Brooklyn Brewery Black Ops 2019 vintage, which was aged in Four Roses barrels. Um, and that was a really special treat for us to, to try and ended up in our, in our top 50. Um, and it's something we see a lot in beer, like bourbon barrel aging products. And uh, we see it everywhere now. I mean, what, what's your opinion on like, can, is bourbon reaching beer drinkers that way? Or is beer reaching bourbon drinkers? And then finally, what about bourbon barrel aged wines? Well, I have to tell you, I think you, you struck uh, a really hot trend right now. And first and foremost, I shall say, I'm an equal opportunity drinker. <laughs> <laughs> I will have a beer, I will drink wine, I will drink my bourbon. Um, you know, so that's, that's good because we can all play together and we can play together very well uh, between all the different industries. Uh, what's a very hot trend right now are what is called finishes or barrel aged products. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, I just wrote another article called The Final Finish where a lot of bourbons are, you know, traditionally making their bourbon as, as they normally do, but they are sourcing different barrels. They might be an Armagnac barrel. It might be a um, Calvados barrel. It, it may be a, a rum barrel. And they're doing uh, a finish, you know, by letting the bourbon, some of the bourbon rest in that secondary barrel. Yeah. And that is called technically a barrel finished product. So with beer using uh, the interior of a barrel, we can only use in our industry a barrel one time. Uh, that's right. according to our bourbon definition white charred oak barrel, one-time use, and then uh, we sell it, you know, to people like, you know, wineries and uh, tequila will buy bourbon barrels, you know, scotch industry, et cetera. But what everybody needs to know is that usually up to 85% of the flavors, the best flavors of that barrel um, are given to bourbon. And then the used barrel, you can still, of course, get great quality flavor. Um, it just takes a little bit longer. And because bourbon is complex and adds so many great congeners uh, to beer, wine, et cetera, that's why you're seeing such a trend uh, because of our complexity. And there are some really great bourbons that are Cabernet finished uh, mm -hmm. that I have tasted. There are really great beers that are uh, bourbon barrel finished. So I think it's really um, insightful. Uh, I think it's innovative. And I, I think we need to keep playing with each other. I agree. So 
So going back to something that you mentioned a bit ago, you were talking about um, how a lot of people think that wine is the only thing that you can pair with food and that you completely disagree. You think bourbon can pair really well with food. Can you talk a little bit about some of your favorite bourbon and food pairings? Oh, sure. Um, you know, it depends, of course. I love to pair bourbon throughout the course of the meal. So when I entertain in my home and have groups of people over that are bourbon fanatics, we don't serve wine. You know, I pair a different mm -hmm. bourbon with each course uh, and also with the appetizers. So we have a ton of fun doing that. But I would say appetizers to me are the most fun to pair because you can really get layers and layers of flavor. Uh, one in particular that I, if you don't mind, I'm making for Christmas. It's a Christmas holiday um, one that I favor. Uh, it is a mushroom cap and I take country ham and borson cheese, which is kind of an herb cheese. And I blend those together. I stuff the mushroom, brush it all with olive oil. And then I bake them until, you know, the cheese is kind of bubbly. And I serve that with a barrel strength whiskey uh, because it is a very earthy flavor with between the country ham, very savory uh, with the mushrooms and earthy again with the mushrooms. And then that herb uh, cheese with the olive oil uh, is, is just phenomenal how it harmonizes with that salty country ham. So you almost need, because it is so rich, you almost need a barrel strength bourbon to almost cut through some of that savoriness. And what it brings to the table is this overlay of caramel note and vanilla note. So think about all the flavors that I just spoke of uh, coming together, you know, and taking a bite of that. That does right. sound delicious. Yeah, you make me really hungry. <laughs> you know, you it, really and that's why I just I just love dissecting an appetizer and kind of breaking down all the flavors and then you know what to pair it with. So you've obviously seen the the bourbon industry evolve um, you know, over the past few decades. What do you think is to explain for to two for two things? One, just its explosive growth in general, and two, the the recent sort of explosion of these these certain bottles that sort of become collector's items and then the prices just become insane so i'm thinking i mean obviously we all know pappy van winkle but you know now it's basically anything that comes out of sazerac right it's you know all of these different producers that i remember like i remember for example i used to be able to to buy some of these for 30 bucks you know five six years ago and now i can't even find some of the these producers on the shelves. Right. Um, what do you think is explaining all of that fervor around bourbon? Well, I will tell you going back, uh, let's say to the mid nineties, um, bourbon actually, I'll go back to eighties. Bourbon actually had a decline in the eighties and we weren't doing a great job of marketing across the world globally. Scotch was kicking our butts, if you will. Uh, and so I think what happened in the nineties, we saw, started to see a resurgence and it was a myriad of things. It was the cocktail culture, for example. Bartenders were starting to bring back some retro cocktails like the Manhattans, the old fashions, you know, highballs that demanded uh, use of bourbon. And so I think cocktails really helped people gravitate over back to bourbon. Uh, I think, you know, pop culture had a huge hand, uh, like Mad Men, if you watched that, you know, they drank a lot of bourbon. And so we totally. had all these influences happening. 
and we became better marketers. We launched the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, which if you know, it's a bucket list thing to do now, um, where you can travel around to the different distilleries throughout Kentucky. I think we now have over 60 uh, distilleries in Kentucky. So we, we just started to do a better job globally as well, you know, breaking into markets, uh, having, you know, other destinations, you know, Japan, especially, you know, fall in love with bourbon. So globally, you know, we developed a better footprint uh, and reach. And so that's, that's really, it didn't happen overnight. And we, we've seen a trajectory, you know, I think the Kentucky Distillers Association about five or six years ago uh, did a 20 year trajectory that our growth would continue. And so far it has, uh, so knock on wood. Now, the other um, side of the coin, I think that you spoke about was, you know, kind of limited expressions and yeah. uh, exclusivity. That seems to be right now, anyway, the name of the game. Uh, okay. I think that scarcity of product, uh, you know, like Blanton's, for example, you mentioned mm -hmm. Sazerac, uh, you know, if, if it's really difficult to find right now. And where once I could buy a case, you know, Me no too. Problem at the local <laughs> store. and it's fervor, as I call it, or fever, I should call it you know, of consumers who it's all, you know, kind of word of mouth. Uh, oh, this, you've got to try this. They're running out of that. Um, and also the distilleries now jumping kind of on that bandwagon of limited expression. You see Woodford Reserve doing a, a bit of that. Um, just saying, you know, we even put this in a smaller bottle because there's only a limited amount. The more exclusive, mm. the more people want. Right. And, you know, that is my distinct impression. And there are, believe me, some bourbons out there that I just think are incredible, uh, that are worth the price of, of purchase. You know, Peerless is making a beautiful rye right now. Um, Colonel Taylor, I can't even find myself. I can't find uh, yeah. I love Colonel Taylor, too. It, and I can't find it anywhere. Right. It's exceptional, but it's so darn hard to find. So even though those have become what I call cult you know, kind of cult products. Um, you just wonder though, when people kind of give up uh, mm -hmm. and say, we're just going to have to start drinking something else because we can never yeah. find it. So when does the pendulum swing? Well, and that's, and sorry, just as a follow-up there, that, that's what I'm, I am wondering, because, you know, that's what, what we're hearing on the editorial side from Irish whiskey producers, from Scotch again, who are starting to say, well, we're producing liquids with, age that is sometimes older than these these a lot of these 10 year old bourbons people are going crazy for and you can find us and we're also 35 bucks mm -hmm. and is this our opportunity and i think what you what you're talking about here is really interesting because the fact that you're recognizing that that could be a problem that that's a threat for bourbon that this scarcity that everyone's obsessed with now constantly hurt the category is really interesting to me well it's yeah, my perspective definitely. You know, and, and they've proven me wrong many times, I'm sure. <laughs> but my perspective is I think it's really cool that people are excited about bourbon and exclusivity. I think it's really exciting. It's just at what threshold will a consumer stand by and say, mm -hmm. we'll wait for that whiskey to come out or we'll wait for that. You know, I, I just don't know that answer. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. And someone... I described it um, recently to somebody as an analogy of art. You know, 
I know that if I look at an art piece, it might touch me personally, but it might not touch my husband personally because he thinks mm -hmm. it's ugly. Um, and so, so bourbon is kind of in the eye of the beholder, just like art is. I like that. So Peggy, I actually have a question that's taking the opposite uh, perspective from long loved legacy bottles. In the bourbon women group, how many people are you seeing who are aspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to start their own bourbon brands or whiskey brands or launch another kind of business in this industry? Many. <laughs> um, now, we are a consumer group. Mm -hmm. We just happen to have industry people that like us and join as well, but we are truly a consumer group. However, within that consumer environment, I know there's a woman uh, right now who actually retired from her first industry love and, because she fell in, you know, in greater love with bourbon and now she has a job in the bourbon industry. And we see a lot of that, you know, that, that people have fallen in love with the culture. Uh, they had no idea that it could be a career. Uh, so we try to network women as much as possible. That's part of our mission uh, with Bourbon Women is to create a great networking resource for those young females. I was on the phone uh, just the other day with another uh, young individual, millennial, that is in a totally different industry, but she worked during the summers at a distillery, uh, really wants to start a career in that. So she sent me her resume. I'm circulating her resume. Um, we, we have those kind of connections and we can't do it, of course, you know, for everybody, but as many as we can touch that are female, we do. That's awesome. Well, Peggy, thank you so much for coming today and talking to us about all things bourbon, bourbon women, bourbon pairings. You are clearly super knowledgeable about the subject and we were very excited to have you come. So we really appreciate it. Well, I loved it. And if anybody is interested in joining Bourbon Women, just go to bourbonwomen.org. You will see our February event, uh, Toast to the 10th on February 25th and 26th. And I hope everybody joins us. You'll see what we're about. Great. Well, th congratulations on 10 years. It's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peggy. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Pairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Pairs Hastings director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Fine Pairs co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Fine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder, Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.